Good afternoon. It's Friday the 10th of July 2020, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century War. Welcome to the pro pro programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. OK, look, we are going to start uh, with this, Patrick. Uh, lots of people have been in touch with us, over, uh, with us over this. Guidance for public health officers, potentially infectious persons. It's not clear whether uh, the government thinks that uh, public health officers are potentially infectious or what, but we will see what this is about in a second. Uh, this comes under Schedule 21 of the Coronavirus Act 2020. Now, we did say when the Act was passed, uh, if you were watching the UK column at the time, that this was an enabling act. Uh, and this guidance seems to give some clarification uh, as to how, what it enables, um, published uh, just uh, a couple of days ago. So uh, here we go. Uh, to, this is all about managing the spread of coronavirus, Patrick. Uh, and they're saying that the Coronavirus Act 2020 provides public health officers with powers to control the spread of coronavirus in the UK. Uh, some of these powers existed already for England in the Health Protection Coronavirus Regulations 2020. However, the Act replaces these regulations with a consistent UK-wide approach and includes certain new powers for immigration officers and constables. Um, this, they go on to say the relevant powers can only be used once the Secretary of State for Health and Social Care has issued a declaration and such a declaration remains in force uh, that the incidence or transmission of coronavirus constitutes a serious or imminent threat to public health in England uh, and the measures set out in the Act are considered as an effective means of delaying or preventing further transmission of coronavirus in England. So it has to be stressed that these particular guidelines uh, only apply to England, although uh, just in the previous paragraph they were suggesting this was UK-wide. In fact, this particular document only applies to England. Uh, it does specify, though, that there are similar powers in place for the other uh, parts of the UK, um, and uh, so there will be similar guidelines in place. Uh, so the question is, what is a public health officer? Um, well, they give us a definition. A PHO is either an officer of the Secretary of State, e.g. an Employment of Public Health England, or a registered public health consultant, uh, so designated by the Secretary of State. Um, so it goes on to say, if you've received a letter from Public Health England acting on behalf of the Secretary of State, which confirms that you've been designated as a registered public health consultant for the purposes of Schedule 21, then you will fall within the definition of a PHO and thus be able to exercise the relevant powers. So this implies, Patrick, uh, some kind of uh, pub, uh, private sector involvement in this. It's not clear, but the term consultant tends to imply uh, public se uh, private sector, sorry. Yeah, it's, it seems like they're, uh, they're giving license uh, for public health consultants or public health officials to be acting in almost a police capacity, uh, Mike. So you know, law enforcement, as it were. So and the sort of powers that uh, under the Mental Health Act, for instance, uh, under sectioning. So this, this really is a, a big step uh, forward with this whole coronavirus emergency framework. Uh, and, and isn't it interesting that they're taking this step at the time we're supposedly coming out of it? Um, so this is clearly in preparation for the so-called second wave. So-called second wave, the, the predicted second wave. Uh, we, we're not sure how they could be so sure that it's coming, but this comes at a time when a lot of the top, uh, I think the report just came out, Mike, we, don't, we might not have the details of this right now, but I think it just came out yesterday. Uh, the top 150 uh, municipalities, uh, local authorities in the country, top tier local authorities, uh, pretty much COVID-free. 
pretty much COVID three. Uh, in, in terms of Devon, uh, eight infections or something mm. like this. I'm not sure what it is, but you'll see similar numbers like this of large geographical areas with just a handful of so-called cases. So, and it, like you said, now it's just disappearing. Uh, it's tailing off, and all of these new. Uh, regulations and powers are coming in. Um, now, the question in the chat box is: What qualifications are needed to be a PHO? This is not uh, this is not defined. Um, it goes on to say: uh, Schedule Twenty One Parts One and Two also include parts for constables and immigration officers to support the function of PHOs. Uh, so PHOs aren't supporting the functions of constables and immigration officers. Quite the opposite. So this uh, comes. Well, we explain why that's necessary in one second. Uh, it says a person is potentially infectious if the person is or may be infected or contaminated with coronavirus and there is a risk that the person might infect, might infect or contaminate others. So you, you don't have to be, you don't have to have had a, uh, a positive test. Uh, it's only if you, there is doubt there, it's if you may be infectious um, and the person has been in an affected area within the 14 days uh, preceding that time. Sorry, that's an or, not an and. Now, just to define uh, what an infected area is, that refers to any country, territory, or any other area outside the UK that the Secretary of State has declared uh, for this purpose in a notice on gov.uk. Now, we'll be coming on to the countries outside the UK that the Secretary of State seems to have already declared that's right. uh, are problematic. Uh, but uh, this is really key. So this is about internal to the UK and also people coming in to the UK. Uh, it goes on to say this, 3.7, implementation of your powers will be done at a local level, coordinating with local resilience partners in accordance with local arrangements. So uh, this, is not a, this is not being handled at a national level. This is being handled at a local level. Your local authority is in charge. Um, and, uh, of course, local resilience partners said, well, these partnerships have been being established for a very long time now. They're well established. The UK column has been talking about them for a number of years uh, and uh, of particular concern are the multi-agency uh, public protection arrangements that we've been talking about for a long time. Uh, it goes on to say this, if a person is not willing to comply voluntarily uh, with any instructions, a PHO should first have a conversation. If the person is still not compliant, then you should invoke the powers conferred on you by the Act. Uh, it says uh, uh, 3.9e, where will the person be taken for screening and assessment? This facility must be suitable for screening and assessment. This could be an isolation facility, an NHS facility, or any other agreed facility, as long as it's suitable for screening and assessment. So you'll be taken off somewhere, sometimes with the help of the police, sometimes perhaps with the help of an immigration officer, but that's not necessarily the case in every instance. And it also applies to children. Uh, so 6.2, you may only exercise your powers on a child in the presence of A, an individual who has responsibility for the child, or B, if no such adult is present, an adult that you consider to be appropriate, having regard to the views of the child. This is quite... Uh, <laughs> unbelievably concerning and uh, uh, people should be asking many questions about this. So a PHO can come along and remove a child uh, with an adult that they consider to be appropriate. All based on whether there's a suspicion that you might be infected or that you may have been in an infected, quote, area in the last 14 days. Absolutely. So maybe if might 
possibly. Possibly. They don't perhaps. know. Uh, absolutely. Uh, it goes on to say this. Uh, individuals should always be given the opportunity to comply voluntarily with public health advice. So it is purely voluntary, except where it isn't, because it then says uh, it is only at the stage where individuals do not comply with such advice that we would look to impose measures under Schedule 21, Parts 1 and 2. So this is absolutely mandatory. There's no choice in this, but don't worry, you'll be given the choice. Is you'll be given the opportunity to make the right choice uh, before they haul you off against your will. Is that not classic doublespeak right there, 9.1 and 9.2? There's nothing voluntary about that. They're saying voluntary in the first clause, and then the second, they're saying, no, actually, no, it's not voluntary. We're only giving you a chance to volunteer yourself. That's not voluntary. Yeah, don't worry, Patrick. We live in a democracy, except we don't. Right. I mean, that's absolutely clear there. Uh, and just to summarize this uh, from another part of the document, public health officers may direct, remove, or request a constable to remove an individual to a place suitable for screening and assessment. That is uh, the situation. Now, uh, when the uh, legislation was originally enacted and published, uh, we did highlight this at the time, uh, but these guidelines make it somewhat clearer because, of course, uh, the legislation is in a particular, you know, it's in legalese. It's, it's not necessarily the easiest thing to do to, to interpret it. Uh, and in fact, to interpret it, you've got to understand a whole bunch of other legislation as well. Uh, this makes it absolutely clear in black and white. Um, so what does uh, Simon Dolan have to say about this, Patrick? Well, he made a comment on this. This is on Twitter. He says, uh, take a read through this document and you'll see why I'm fighting so hard in his legal challenge against the government on behalf of uh, many businesses across the country. These regs, regulations, uh, give the right to take away from home and detain anyone, including children, for up to 14 days using force if necessary. If they suspect you might be infected, England 2020, says Simon Dolan. And uh, just a reminder here, this is his uh, legal challenge, Mike, uh, that he's running. You can see this up on Crowd Justice, join the legal challenge to uh, challenge the UK government regarding lockdown. And uh, he has uh, run into uh, a, a slight wall uh, recently, but he has just uh, announced on his crowdfunding page that uh, they're challenging the government's decision to deny permission for a judicial review over the government measure. So he's, he's really taking the fight now uh, to the government. This is not an easy fight. Obviously, you're going up against a, uh, a massive machine here in terms of uh, legalese and the judiciary, but the fight is being waged nonetheless. So go to Crowd Justice to learn more about Simon Dolan's legal challenge against the government. Um, absolutely. Now, uh, of course, this uh, guidance is published just in time for the borders to be reopened. We can now uh, travel to and from certain countries uh, without quarantine. Patrick, uh, so what is the situation with this? Well, we're, we, we sort of know, but we don't know. There's a little confusion involved here. So arrivals to the UK from dozens of countries will no longer have to self-isolate. So no mandatory quarantine if you're arriving from a number of countries. Um, you, Priti Patel, uh, the Home Secretary, announced this back in June that there would be a quarantine 14 days for anybody coming from uh, outside of the UK. Now they've green-lighted, basically. They're calling it a air bridge, if you will, or immunity bridge. But there's just a little bit of confusion. Look who's back. Doesn't know quite what to do about booking his holiday. That is Caroni, ladies and gentlemen. And once again, as always, he's a bit confused. And just to add to the confusion, uh, all of these safe countries, Mike, um, are, are pretty much uniform across England, Wales, and Northern Ireland. However, 
However, there's a problem. Uh, Scotland, it's not uniform. Uh, Nippy wants to keep restrictions on Spain. Anybody coming from Spain uh, is not safe going to Scotland. So if you're coming from Spain or you're a Spaniard, you're going to have to be quarantined if you want to uh, fly in north of the border. So uh, Well, this is, this is an interesting point because she also warned anybody in Scotland that was heading off to Spain, for example, that they shouldn't even consider trying to travel through a, an English airport uh, because, well, she didn't specify what might happen to them, but she just said, don't do it. Yeah, or don't fly into an English airport and then drive over the border yeah, in Scotland. Yeah, exactly. That, that, so that, not, was, that was the clear problem with that. <laughs> another workaround there. Yeah. So I don't see how she's going to be able to enforce that one for anybody that really wants to go to Spain. But um, So Caroni's confused, and he's not alone. Uh, and let's call this biojingoism because this is interesting. Just considering Brexit and the to the remainers anyway, in the spirit of a united Europe, uh, between 40 and 54 percent of Spaniards would disapprove of tourists from a group of European nations. The figure rises to 61 percent for those coming from the UK. So the Spanish aren't particularly keen, Mike. Apparently, six out of ten don't want people from the UK coming to Spain. Why would that be? Maybe because of the uh, astronomical COVID numbers in the UK. Now, opposition to UK holiday holidaymakers is not confined to Spain, however. 58% from Germany and 55% from France. 44% from Italy have similar sentiments. For Interesting that Italy is, is only 44%. Yeah, for Brits abroad. So I Italy, on, on the whole, the majority are... are have fealty towards the uh, British public uh, regarding the corona crisis. But so a little bit of uh, ambivalence there from Germany and France. So that's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. I thought we were all one big happy family. Maybe this is a Brexit effect. It could be. Who knows? But let's take a look at the uh, total number of safe countries here. My, Australia, yeah. I might add, on that list, uh, they've just gone into, Victoria's gone into lockdown again. Yeah. Yeah. So they've, Hong Kong is also on this list, which is interesting. Um, not China. We'll look at some of the unsafe countries in a minute. But this is just a rundown here of the countries that are declared safe by the UK government. So, including Vietnam. I mean, there are, there's some perhaps surprising countries in that list. There are. There are. It's, it's a very interesting list. Pretty much most of the British Commonwealth. Not a lot of the large countries. But let's look at uh, who's not safe. This and this is where it gets very interesting, especially considering the previous. Uh, segment that you covered, Mike. Sweden is not deemed safe. Sorry, Sweden's not safe despite having a lower uh, death count per million than the UK and the fact that it's uh, recovering better than the UK at the moment. Uh, Sweden's not safe, dare I suggest, Patrick, because they won't wear masks. This is part of it. Sweden did not go into full lockdown from the beginning of this crisis and the UK press has been punishing them. There's been a smear campaign internationally from lockdown countries against Sweden. So that might be part of it. So in a way, this is kind of retribution. That Sweden, we disapprove of how Sweden has managed the coronavirus crisis. Therefore, we're going to reimpose uh, sanctions on Sweden for, for travelers, make life a little bit more difficult if you think you want to go visit Stockholm or Gothenburg or go up into the Swedish highlands for the weekend. Mm. So let's look at who else is on the list here. Serbia is on the disfavored list. They were okay, Mike, until a couple of days ago, and something happened a couple of days ago that put them on the bad list from the UK government. Well, I'll show you that in a second, but that's interesting. Of course, Bulgaria, the people rose up and ended the lockdown 
last month or the month uh, six weeks ago. So that they're being punished a little bit. There's absolutely nothing going on for COVID in Bulgaria, Mike, non-existent. But the people rebelled against lockdown. So mm, I guess they're on the bad list. Albania, same thing. The people rose up. They, they basically ended the lockdown and uh, scared the government who thought they were going to lose power for a minute there. So they're not allowed uh, any sort of special safe status by the UK government. And of course, China, Hong Kong's on the list, but China's not. Figure that one out. There is travel between Hong Kong and China, free travel and so forth. So China's being punished. And of course, the United States uh, is not on that list either for maybe obvious reasons. It's, it's now the sort of lead country in terms of uh, the whole COVID crisis. But Russia's not on the list either. They're not, they're not safe. Neither is Belarus, a non-lockdown country. So what I'm, what I'm saying here, Mike, is there's a geopolitical shape to this. And it will be very easy now using these various restrictions, uh, the PHO document we mm -hmm. saw, plus travel, uh, red tape, to basically draw borders, Mike, invisible borders around the world. And most of the NATO countries are fine. They're all safe within the NATO bloc for the most part. So there, there could be a geopolitical dimension to this. Mm. So let's look at what happened in Serbia. Why, why did Serbia all of a sudden fall out of favor in the last 48 hours? Well, maybe it was this. Tens of thousands of people outside of the government, the parliament building in Belgrade, protesting uh, new COVID-19 lockdown policies by the government. So they had something like 300 new, quote, infections, and 15 people supposedly died from covid uh, in the last week or so, and all of a sudden the government puts a new lockdown order uh, mm. on the public, and then tens of thousands of people come out in droves to protest this, and all of a sudden they're on the bad list uh, in terms of the UK government. So isn't that interesting? Yes. This is totally arbitrary, how they're drawing up these lists of what countries are safe, what countries aren't. Um, what about Belarus and Russia? Be Belarus and Russia are not uh, safe, deemed safe. So, again, there's a geopolitical dimension to that, potentially. Uh, but I don't know what the situation is in Russia compared to other countries. They seem to have similar numbers in general. I mean, in terms of Sweden, uh, Belarus, Bulgaria, a lot of these countries, statistically, the differences are very minor and mm. insignificant, in fact. If you're talking about countries of 3, 5, 7, 12 million and you're talking about numbers in terms of fatalities within a difference of hundreds or maybe a thousand or fifteen hundred uh, since March, it's really it's a non-event. It's neither here nor there. So how can you how can you discriminate from one country to the next? I'm calling this biojingoism mm. potentially. There could be a geopolitical element to this. This could be used to restrict travel around the world, drawing invisible borders, using the COVID-19 crisis to do that. Um, okay, now uh, let's bring uh, this website on screen. This is uh, the IMHE. This is uh, the Institute for Mental Met uh, Sorry, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. It's an independent, or they call themselves an independent global health research center. It's based at the University of Washington in Seattle, and they produce models just like the uh, Neil Ferguson model at Imperial College. Um, so they produce some new models for what happens. Uh, whether depending on whether we wear masks or not. So let's have a look at that. Here we go. Uh, 68,367 COVID-19 deaths in the UK is uh, what they're predicting. But as you can see, if you look at the graph there, the dotted red line to the right-hand side is what happens if uh, the UK doesn't wear masks. And the dotted green line 
is the U what happens if the UK does wear masks according to their uh, models. So they're saying that 68,000 COVID deaths by November in the UK, or if we choose to wear masks, that would be 48,000 deaths if we wear masks. Uh, the same goes for, uh, let's see, what's this one? Daily deaths, as you can see, if we don't wear masks, the daily death rate is gonna go uh, exponential again. Uh, but if we do wear masks, then the daily death rate is gonna collapse. Uh, it's fantastic stuff. Uh, and uh, here we go. This one is daily infections and testing. And as you can see, once again, if we don't wear masks, daily infections and testing are going to go exponential. If we do wear masks, uh, then they're not. Um, so the question is, are their models accurate? Well, not really, but we'll come on to that in a second. Let's just remember uh, what we said last week about masks. This is the, the warning on a package of masks. Uh, this product is an ear loop mask. This product is not a respirator and will not provide any protection against COVID-19 uh, or other viruses or contaminants. Wearing an ear loop mask does not reduce the risk of con contracting any disease or infection. Uh, user is solely responsible for the selection of appropriate personal protection equipment uh, for the setting and application. Uh, change immediately if contaminated. Um, now, of course, uh, if you remember last week when we were talking about this, um, there, there was a whole fact check, fact checking exercise over this, uh, and the conclusion from the fact checkers was that although this warning on the box was correct, it was being misinterpreted uh, by the people who were suggesting that this meant that masks don't work. I'm not quite clear how that could possibly be misinterpreted, but there you go. Now, getting back to this organisation, uh, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, uh, the question is, uh, are their models accurate? Well, absolutely not. This is Vox reporting that this coronavirus model keeps being wrong. Why are we still listening to it? And of course, just like the UK government listened, they listened to Neil Ferguson at Imperial College, the US government was listening to uh, the uh, IHME uh, and Chris Murray, and uh, it was just about as successful over there as Neil Ferguson was over here. So I have to ask a quick question, Mike. Um, if these, mo these models are correct, how come countries that don't have mandatory masks haven't had them for the duration of this crisis? How come they're not seeing these spikes that are being predicted um, in all of these different models? Uh, well, I don't have an answer for you, but what we do know is that those countries then end up on the bad boy list, as you've uh, just defined. On the red list. Absolutely. Yeah, unsafe countries. Absolutely. Unclean. Uh, absolutely. And just a quick reminder is if anybody watching this program needed any uh, reminding, here's Cato Institute, how one model simulated 2.2 million US deaths from COVID-19. This, of course, was Neil Ferguson's model, uh, and the press, the mainstream press, couldn't really ignore it here either. Uh, could be the most devastating software mistake of all time. Yes, indeed. So we should have learned the lesson regarding computer models months ago, uh, but yet here they come, new models. New models. New models. This time the latest uh, propaganda is over masks. Now, I'm just going to remind everybody, uh, here's just three scientific papers on the use of masks. Now, remember N95 respirators, these are the most, uh, uh, the, the, the most significant type of masks that, that anybody can use. The gold standard Absolutely as, the gold as far standard. as pedestrian Thank you. masks go. Uh, absolutely. So, uh, and this report, this uh, scientific paper here saying that the use of N95 respirators compared with surgical masks is not associated with a lower risk of laboratory confirmed influenza. Now we're not talking about influenza here, we're talking about COVID, but the, the sentiment is the same. Uh, the same thing applies. 
this one preliminary report on surgical mask induced deoxygenation uh, during major surgery and showing that in fact heart rates, heart rates rose uh, as a result of uh, the, the lack of oxygen. Now we have seen uh, uh, a, a little video clip doing the, doing the rounds of uh, social media. I think it's a very useful video clip uh, of uh, a guy who tests air quality in uh, commercial settings, uh, testing uh, what happens whenever you put a mask on. Uh, and he's making the point that in the United States, the legal limit for oxygen, percentage oxygen in the, in the air is 19% if you're working in a commercial setting. Uh, and that immediately he puts a mask on the amount of uh, proportion of, of oxygen available is 17% and the alarm goes off on his uh, calibrated test equipment. So uh, this is a, an extremely important situation, the, the fact that you, you lose oxygen supply. And then finally, a third, uh, a, a third paper here, uh, immuno exit uh, mechanisms for, uh, for, well, we're not going to read the title of this, basically the, the headline the, the, the key point about this paper is showing that the hypoxia induced by mask wearing has the potential to cause tumors. Uh, this is and hypo hypoxia is when you, you breathe in your own carbon dioxide, right? Well, no, hypoxia, no, that's another thing. Hypoxia is when you simply have a, lo a lower level of, of oxygenation mm -hmm. in your bloodstream. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, it's extremely dangerous. And as you say, Breathing in your own carbon dioxide also extremely dangerous, and in fact, the carbon, the excess carbon dioxide in your bloodstream can cause uh, enhanced mental health problems. It can cause all kinds of issues. So, well, knowing all that, it just makes perfect sense that people should wear masks outdoors all day, maybe seven to eight hours a day, right? Knowing all those things that you just said, all of those uh, drawbacks to wearing masks. Yeah, absolutely. It makes perfect sense. Perfect sense. Perfect sense. And here's something else that makes perfect sense. We reported this on uh, earlier in the week. Uh, this is the Irish News with uh, a leaked health service action plan for Northern Ireland, which re reveals that the uh, five largest hospitals in Northern Ireland were no longer going to or are no longer going to accept walk-ins to accident and emergency by August. Mm. So you will not be able to just turn up at A&E and expect to get some support. The only way to get into A&E will be to uh, go by ambulance. Uh, now they were claiming that they were going to uh, create uh, other centres, uh, emergency centres for uh, other things, whether you've broken a wrist or need an x-ray or whatever it is. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, this is a significant change in policy. Well, it looks like there's a similar not quite the same, but a similar some, uh, change in policy coming to the, the rest of the UK, uh, and that is in the form of appointments. So you're, you're going to have to know when you're going to break your wrist or your elbow or your shoulder, Patrick, and make sure you make an appointment at A&E before you do it. So it's a telephone interview. It'll be a telephone screening. Uh, absolutely. So telephone triaging for A&E. They, they've already instituted this with GPs, right? Yes. They have. Okay, so now if you do this with A&E, you're more or less going to get the same sort of experience, aren't you, uh, with a screen phone call that you do with your GP. In other words, they're going to be trying to filter out as many people as possible to keep them away from uh, A&E treatment, right? Because uh, This is the case. They're already being kept away from the GPs, so now they're going to be kept away from A&E. So uh, it, one of the reasons that so many people died in their homes during the lockdown uh, was that they were scared to go, go to hospital, so the, the, the psychological operation had meant that they uh, were not willing to go to hospital through fear, and as a result, people were dying of heart attacks and strokes. Uh, now there's going to be a triage situation, 
Um, so the fear isn't sufficient to keep enough people away, it seems. And this, again, is on the basis of a perception that there might be a second wave coming. Now, I think that there is going to be uh, a perception of a, of a second wave coming because that's going to be uh, something which is given to people through the mainstream press, a perception. Mm. It's not going to be a genuine event. So as, as we reported before, Mike, effectively GPs are more or less shut down for normal service. Now A&E shut down for normal service. So the NHS, a large portion of the NHS is effectively shut down. Correct. I thought we were rebuilding the NHS. I thought we needed to save the NHS. It was a national treasure. It's providing this great service for everybody. So why is so much of it being shut down right now? I have an idea. Uh, if you can't get service through the NHS, uh, wouldn't this open up an opportunity for private health care to sort of open and offer alternative services for money? Uh, that that is one. That's absolutely one possibility. The other possibility, of course, is that uh, that if if they simply uh, through the shutdown of the NHS drop people off waiting lists, mm -hmm. then all kinds of statistics can be massaged to make the NHS look even better. It's going to create a market for private health care. Yeah. And if you if you have a choice between getting treatment that you need and not getting it through the NHS, more than likely, what are you going to do? You're going to pay for it. Well. Now, a lot of people aren't going to be in a position to do that, as we're just about to come on to. But uh, let's let's uh, just uh, say thank you very much once again to everybody that has uh, helped Ian R. Crane uh, with his Go GoFundMe campaign. That's now up to £29,450 just before the uh, we came on air. Uh, it'd be lovely to see that over 30000 uh, in the next day or so. Sure, yeah, and, and mind you, they, they met their goal very early and... Uh, it's really a big thank you to everybody yes. uh, who got in and contributed to this. This uh, gives Ian great uh, amount of uh, uh, liberty, if you will, in terms of his own treatment and for anybody going through this type of situation. And many of us do have loved ones who've been through the situation. Having that ability is a big, big thing. It makes a huge difference. So thank you to everybody. Uh, who jumped in and helped out on this effort. Absolutely. Uh, now, on Wednesday, uh, Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor of the Exchequer, gave uh, a, a, a budget, a sort of mini-budget. Uh, we were just, uh, well, we'll just remind everybody, this was from a couple of weeks ago, he was in, uh, when, when lockdown was starting to, shops were starting to reopen, he was in looking at the books, and, and he clearly got his inspiration for the mini-budget from the books he was looking at, which was, uh, as you can see there, Patrick Enid Blyton, mainly. Heady stuff. Heady stuff, absolutely. Um, but uh, one of the things that he announced, uh, Patrick, was the uh, fantastic deal over PubGrub. Yes, this is, uh, is going to put a lot of people's minds at rest uh, to know the Chancellor has uh, okayed uh, what they called, it's funny how they rolled this out, 50% off a meal out. So in order to kickstart the economy, the Chancellor is giving vouchers. Supposedly, it was 50% off a meal, but that, well, that, I, I, that really wasn't what it was, No, was no, it? no, because, because when he announced this, uh, you know, I sort of thought, well, you know, a couple of people go out for a meal, they're going to spend 100 quid. That's a pretty good deal. Yeah, no, no, it's not. It's, it's a 10-pound voucher <laughs> for, for some pub grub. Um, and we, uh, we, we managed to get a hold of one of these vouchers. Here we go. This is a 10-pound voucher here. Stay alert. Control the virus. And, and if you're willing to uh, pay the upgrade fee, Rishi himself will come and serve you at your table, Mike. How exciting could that be? Uh, but my understanding was he served the wrong table, so you may not get that deal. He, he did. He did. I think he's doing a little shift at Wagamama's here, and uh, 
sort of mix the orders up. But he's got a big smile on his face, and he's, he's rolling up his sleeves. That's what's important. Tony Blair showed us how to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Back they roll the sleeves up and get stuck in. So, uh, But, you know, this... What, what this is a kind of like, uh, here's another image here of uh, uh, somebody with a mask on. Uh, I don't know if they're a punter or staff or whatever, but um, the, the, the hospitality trade is, has been wiped out effectively, especially independent-owned businesses. They've really been wiped out. They may not survive all of the excessive regulations and so forth. But effectively, the government is saying, we'll give you a 10-quid voucher for a pub meal, but you're going to have to pay for it in tax hikes and austerity for the next decade. Well, I mean, it, it's unbelievable that they would try a stunt like this. And somehow that's going to ingratiate uh, the public in some way. I, I, it's amazing. Absolutely. Now, <laughs> this is, this is uh, how the BBC presented that on Wednesday afternoon. Chancellor gives diners 50% off on eating out. And so you immediately think, yes, this is going to be really nice. And then the image they put beside that is four people sitting around a table with two glasses of wine between the four of them and masks on everybody. Oh. It's not clear how anybody's eating anything or drinking anything under those circumstances. Now look at the boy in the foreground with the beard here and the uh, Lenin porch climber cap. He's got his hands on a glass of Merlot and he's still got his mask on. How is he going to negotiate that, Mike? How is he going to drink that glass of wine? That's the question. So this is a propaganda picture. Total. That's been put here, and we see so much of this in the mainstream media. Of course, The Guardian uh, has, um, you know, they're effectively functioning as a propaganda vehicle for the state with very similar images and a lot of their sort of uh, COVID coverage. Absolutely. Now, we had a message in just before the program, uh, and I'm just going to read a little bit of this because uh, it's, it is relevant. It's from somebody. Thank you very much for this. He says, uh, I work as a chef in the UK and thought you might be interested to hear how the lockdown has affected uh, him, his, co uh, his colleagues, and overall hospitality. Uh, so, abnormal measures, uh, one-way system for staff and guests, visors worn by front of house, uh, have been asked to wear a mask if in front of guests, uh, seating is all socially distanced, uh, delivery drivers can't go inside the premises, uh, Staff, some staff have been taken off furlough, others not, uh, they have to keep their distance in the kitchen, which is impossible, uh, they're not able to sit next to each other when having a break, which is the only time of the day they uh, have to chat amongst each other, interact and communicate freely. Uh, and uh, the, he said that uh, his employers can't afford to take everyone back, so they have an A team and a B team. Uh, the A team is back working now and the B team are ready to come off the bench uh, as and when they're needed. Um, so, of course, this is creating jealousy and division within the staff uh, of, the, of the restaurant. So uh, we're seeing this type of tactic everywhere. Now, I understand that restaurants can't necessarily, well, I mean, they simply can't afford to bring everybody off furlough straight away because these uh, uh, restrictions on what they're allowed to do um, are so draconian that, uh, you know, under they, they cannot go back to the staffing levels they had before because they simply can't afford it. Um, now, I, I don't know if you've got any thoughts on this, Patrick, but but uh, I think there are one or two outlets that are starting to appreciate this and are starting to pretty much ignore. More and more, the, fur the furlough scheme by the government is becoming a more and more a cheap facade for really an expensive unemployment scheme, really prolonging the inevitable, right, in terms of uh, layoffs. Well, well, that's right. And, of course, it only lasts until October. So uh, after that, we're going to see the significant layoffs. Um, they're... 
were last week 9.1 million people on furlough and last week we heard the announcement that uh, 300,000 people had come off furlough now I'm not uh, I haven't seen the latest statistics for this week it's not going to be significantly more than that so you know we, we are still looking at a significant number of unemployed and we'll be coming on to that in a second and the European countries that don't have all these restrictions and regulations and one-way systems and visors and a teams and B teams they're not having any second waves or spikes why is that, Mike? Hmm. Caroni is not spending time on the continent anymore. He's, he's only in the UK, apparently. So it seems. I don't know. Now, one of the other things that uh, uh, Rishi announced was this, but uh, we're going to leave it to Therese Coffey, the Department for Work and Pensions Minister, to, uh, to tell us all about it. Uh, she said, as we finally enjoy the long overdue haircut, go to the pub and pop out for a meal, we're finding our new normal. Well, we do understand what that means. I think her haircut's long overdue as well, Mike. Uh, I, I couldn't possibly comment. But anyway, she goes on to say this, uh, that she's bringing in 13,500 new work coaches dedicated to helping people find work and have a huge impact. And that's going to have a huge impact. So they're bringing 13,500 work coaches into Job Centre Plus to help the 8 million people that are going to be unemployed um, find new jobs. Can you tell me how that's going to work? Because I don't have a clue. She went on to say work coaches are the people who can see from a CV that someone can pivot from struggling from one struggling sector into another thriving one. Wow. The ability wow. to pivot on the flight. I think they could probably all get jobs as uh, contact tracers. That seems like a pretty cushy, cushy gig. Uh, yeah, the well, there are there are some jobs. There aren't eight million of them, uh, but uh, COVID cops inspecting pubs, making sure people are social distancing, and staff members are not taking breaks together and talking to each other. Uh, Things like that. Absolutely. We need to crack down on that. Uh, absolutely. Now, of course, uh, Rishi has uh, announced on Wednesday this two billion pound kickstart scheme, which includes the the uh, the. Uh, bung for going to the restaurants. It also includes some money for uh, removing stamp duty from properties up to £500,000 uh, and the £3 billion green fund on top of that. So that's vouchers of up to £5,000 for energy saving home improvements, new insulation and stuff like this. It's lots of vouchers being published at the moment. Uh, why, and, can't, uh, why can't they throw in a pint with the half-price meal deal, I don't understand. No, no, no. They're not paying for the for the alcohol industry. That's this wouldn't that would be considered a glass of house wine or a pint. Uh, one point eight billion, uh, one point six billion. Sorry, package of loans and grants for the arts and heritage sector announced as well. So where does that take us? Well, let's have a look at the uh, the overall debt situation. So government debt now up to two trillion pounds uh, or so. Uh, none of these other. Areas of debt have really shrunk since uh, 2008. In fact, they're probably worse in most cases. Uh, but uh, that brings us around the 16 trillion mark for the total outstanding debt for the country as a whole, between government, private, personal, pensions, obligations, and so on. Uh, and at the bottom, you see, I've had to put a question mark beside the percentage of GDP because, of course, we don't know what GDP is going to be this year. It's going to be a fraction of what it was. Uh, and so this actually doesn't represent 800% of GDP, which is where it was uh, before Caroni came to visit. Uh, mm -hmm. It's probably going to be significantly higher than the 800% of GDP. Uh, but uh, it is a question mark because we simply can't tell. That's scary, Mike. This is getting into IMF rescue loan territory in terms of third world countries. 
in terms of debt to GDP ratio. It's crazy. Uh, absolutely. Uh, but the, don't worry, because more and more information is coming out about the scale of the problem. The OECD this time uh, facing the jobs crisis. So that's fantastic. They're telling us that the uh, pandemic has triggered one of the worst jobs crises since the Great Depression. I would suggest it's probably worse than that. But anyway, uh, what have they been saying? Well, let's have a, a brief look. Uh, the impact is 10 times worse in some countries, though. So people's working hours have plummeted. Uh, and as you can see, uh, the, the blue line on the screen there at the moment is the 2007-2008 financial crisis, uh, the financial crisis to end all financial crises, except for the next one. Uh, and uh, to the red line shows the COVID-19 crisis uh, this is the number of uh, hours worked. Uh, well, of course, that's as a result of lockdown. Um, that isn't going to come back very, very quickly. Uh, but let's look and see what happens with unemployment. And they say that uh, on, the, on the basis that there's a single hit scenario, so that what we've had is all we're going to get, uh, then the UK comes down below France, uh, the euro area as a whole, Canada and the OECD countries, and we will have 3.9% unemployment. Uh, as a result of what's already happened. But should there be a second wave, Patrick, the situation gets a lot worse uh, because we jump up to second place, one behind the United States at 14.8% unemployment. Uh, and the thing uh, equally of concern, though, is that this is, uh, this is unemployment levels for Q4 2020. If we, sorry, you're going to... Well, I just want to point out, Mike, that the numbers you're looking at, it's important for people to realize coronavirus is not driving those numbers. What's driving those numbers are government lockdown policies. Absolutely. That's what drives those figures. Absolutely, absolutely. But those are for Q4 2020. So let's move ahead a year for what they foresee in Q4 2021. Uh, and as you can see, the United Kingdom in a year's time will still be at 9% unemployed. Uh, that is pretty spectacular situation. I think that's hugely underestimated, uh, uh, I, but that's what government does with unemployment figures uh, generally. I, I completely agree with you, yeah. but, but, but my point here is that 13,500 work coaches isn't going to cut it mm. under those circumstances. Uh, and uh, frankly, the Job Centre Plus isn't going to cut it either. They're not going to cope with the numbers of people that are going to uh, be attempting to get support. Uh, so what are they going to do? Provide uh, telephone support? No. Uh, training schemes. I don't know. They have to make work. Isn't that what the job coaching is, Mike? Thirteen? Did you say thirteen thousand? No, no. Five? Job coaching will be will involve uh, totally uh, giving advice, uh, looking at your CV, and looking at what other industry sectors you might look for jobs. But if the jobs aren't there, and those are new new jobs, those job coaching jobs, right? Oh, they are. Yeah, yeah. So that's the that's the only jobs I guess it that, should apply to be a job coach. coach absolutely. That's where the money is. That's where the work is. Totally. There's, there are no other jobs growing in any other sector except security and uh, COVID regulatory uh, inspectors. That's it. Or job coaching. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, now, uh, in terms of government money being spent, Patrick, then, uh, what's happening with your universal credit? Well, as, as we've said on this show many times, UBI, universal basic income or universal credit, has been an absolute nightmare. But the nightmare doesn't end only with the person's uh, compliance that needs to collect the money and how difficult that can be. The cost of rolling out universal credit is rising by 
uh, another 1.4 billion pounds. That's just the cost of actually uh, administrating the whole thing? Rolling the program right. out. So um, that doesn't even begin begin to touch on the problems with this in general. In terms of people keeping up with their basic cost of living, it, the system doesn't work. Or it's not mm -hmm. very effective. And in, in many cases, Mike, it leaves people further in the hole than they were before by the time they go through this process. So this doesn't work. This system doesn't work. But yet... The government is still getting behind it, still pushing it forward, mm. even though it's not working. So this is uh, not good times. So. Um, right. Now, a uh, bit of interesting news here, because on uh, Wednesday's program, we were talking about China and the new dossier uh, with respect to Huawei in China, uh, written by Christopher Steele. Uh, and in fact, his dossier was all about uh, the, the, the people uh, in the UK being influenced by China, very Russiagate in its, uh, in its formulation. Uh, but Patrick, he's not having it all his own way. Well, he's not, Mike. And a, a British uh, a private intelligence firm, Orbis, this is Orbis's top fantasy fiction writer, has been ordered by a British court uh, to basically pay uh, Russian bankers. So writing defamatory or libelous material, he's now uh, been ordered to pay out to the Russians. For making stuff up, basically. But to clarify that he's not paying this out to the Putin regime, he's paying this out to oligarchs, is to, that right? To, to private citizens, right. yes, who've been named and shamed or mentioned in some way, shape, or form. So, uh, and again, while everybody's still putting all this credence into the Russian narrative, going into the next U.S. election cycle, uh, which is going to be in four months, is going to be an election, they're still now revitalizing, reharping on the Russian narrative, and you have things like this happening uh, in court, so Christopher Steele's reputation continues to plummet, but yet I'll bet Mike he's not short of work still. Indeed, indeed. So, where does that take us? Well, it's time for a feel good story. It's not all bad news, Mike. It's not all bad news. We wanted to kind of close the program out with a, a feel good story, and uh, this is Rocky, uh, and this is where the White Helmets meet Rocky. They're saying, and Rocky, this is effectively Al Qaeda pet rescue. And uh, we do notice that someone has tied the dog up to the tree, it looks like, anyway. And uh, we fear for Rocky's safety, uh, but he's in good hands, apparently, and the White Helmets can now wear their COVID mask with confidence. Uh, this is in the Idlib province. This is the last remaining terrorist stronghold in Syria. They've been flushed out of every other part of the country, but they still remain in Idlib province. So... This is uh, Al-Qaeda Pet Rescue, but it gets better than this. Uh, let's look at uh, this is the White Helmets account. Let's look at this story. This is wonderful. This is uh, posted by the White Helmets yesterday. They're carrying out here an aqua rescue, Mike, believe it or not. This is on July 8th. Uh, Hussein Al-Sagur, a 12-year-old displaced from Homs, our White Helmets water rescue team. You can see the three water rescue specialists there up on deck in their boots and helmets. Uh, they've recovered his body. Apparently he drowned in one of the swimming pools in the Idlib countryside. Let's take a closer look at this though. And what do we see? Well, firstly, we can see this, the uh, clothesline there, drying the clothes. So this looks like it could be uh, a former public swimming pool, perhaps. It's been commandeered. So Quranic verses on the back wall there. Uh, but this is interesting. This is a scuba diver in the pool. So the White Helmets needed a scuba diver to get this body out of the pool. Um, so what is this? This is Baywatch Idlib. What else can we call it? This is 
you can't get better comedy than this, Mike. I don't know. The, 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 they seem to be getting more desperate with the levels of their propaganda. Yeah, their support is absolutely plummeting, and so nobody really cares anymore. The media have abandoned Syria. The money's drying up from all the governments, and they're still putting out all these sort of pap stories mm. on their Twitter feed, and they're just getting more and more ridiculous by the day. So absolutely. if you want a good laugh and be entertained, uh, follow the White Helmets on Twitter. There's a plug. Absolutely. Okay, well, we will leave it there for today. Thank you very much for joining me today, Patrick. Thank you for joining us. Uh, we will be back at the same time uh, on Monday as usual. Have a great week weekend, and we hope to see you then. Bye-bye.